Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot him in the head. Set, go. Welcome to Shoot Me Straight. Dave Fields, Eddie Gallagher. We're here with Brian Smith and Russ Mara. And these guys uh, reached out to, they actually met our producer and um, shared their story. And then I got to talk with Brian some about what he's doing, which is pretty incredible. I know he, he he's going to get into talking about the horses in a little bit. Me and Eddie are not quite equine experts. Speak for say. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're going to, I'm going to learn a lot. Yeah, for sure. It's, hey, it's an honor to have you both on here. Um, I'm definitely excited to hear about, you know, the horses and like equine therapy, what it does for people, because that's one of my passions is just helping veterans as they get out when they transition. And I know you two can relate to, you know, just how hard that is. And you've probably seen it. Uh, so, yes, sir. Yeah, um, I think, you know, we can get started with uh, just tell us a little about yourselves, you know, where you're from and what, what you've done. Uh, I'll try to be as succinct as possible. Uh, <laughs> from about the age of uh, age 11, 10, 10 and a half, 11. That's speaking of the mic. Yeah, just like a oh. fist a fist away from the there mic. There you go. Could be good. Fist away. Um, uh, Mom got remarried for the third time uh, to a, a soldier in the Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were up in upstate New York at the time. Uh, and so that kind of like started my quote-unquote military career, if you will. And uh, so we, we went to station in California, Arizona, Texas, and then uh, ended up going to high school in Munich, Germany uh, for three, three or four, year, four years. Um, and at 17, I came home, had the paperwork, had them sign it, and joined on the delayed entry program to go into the military. The big thing for me was um, I, w- I wanted to follow into my step-grandfather's footsteps. Uh, in World War II, he was a paratrooper. Uh, he made two combat jumps, um, and he was very, very protective of me. Uh, and he died um, when I was ten years old, uh, well, right before we left New York. And one of the things that I always remembered about him, there's many, but the thing that I really loved the most was, on his right forearm, he had a parachute. And I used to always talk to him about it, and he would explain it to me. But at ten, I was like, "Oh, that's the coolest thing, and ever yeah. you're doing this," and you know, and. Uh, so the day I, I went to, to jump school, you know, basic and AIT and jump school to be a paratrooper, and that was the, the first tattoo that I got, uh, which has been a very important thing for me. That's awesome. And the things that I have are very specific mm-hmm. for me and, and, and for the, the life. Um, in the military, uh, I had a pretty, uh, pretty cool career. Did 21 years in, um, retired uh, in 03. Uh, did a lot of time in various airborne units, um, a lot of time at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Uh, spent uh, two years uh, with 7th Special Forces Group uh, down 3rd Battalion. Um, Where were I, they? My, uh, my, uh, oh. my, well, I was going to say, um, so I got stationed in uh, Fort Kobe in Panama. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a paratrooper down there. We were initially one company, uh, like back in, I think it was 84. Um, and then the battalion uh, in 85 went to a full airborne battalion. And then uh, I got... Um, I tested and went to, back then they called it reconnaissance platoon, now they call it scout platoon, but same, same difference. And we basically got attached to 3-7. And we got to 
do a lot of teamwork. Um, back then, in the middle of the 80s, um, there was two sections of <laughs> Central America that were very active for us, uh, primarily in Honduras and then along the borders of Nicaragua and El Salvador. Um, and basically the mission was to assist the Honduran government and their military and uh, subordinate units in um, defending their country. And you have to remember at that time, they were taking hits from both sides. They were taking hits from El Salvador and taking hits from Nicaragua. Mm. And you're talking about the Sandinistas, the communist Nicaraguans. And so a lot of action there. And then we would go back to Panama, kind of refit and everything. And then we were doing some um, drug interdiction stuff along the Colombian and Panamanian borders and stuff like that. Were you playing that in that role? Um, I mean, were you guys conducting FID down there? There was some FID, yes. Yeah. There was, there was, th- yes, there was FID missions down there. Uh, any type of DA type of operations were yeah. way above me and were usually um, because something occurred in a training environment. Yes. So that's all I'll say about yeah. that. Uh, but but yes, there there was some there was several FID missions that that we were very fortunate to work with, uh, two teams specifically that uh, probably don't need to discuss that any further. But yeah, yeah, I mean that's it, it, I mean, it, it was it was it was exciting. I was young, you know, I, and and back then the thing about uh, SF units, especially once you got to know the guys really well and they they took you in, um, it it wasn't like. You could do literally like OJT, like on-the-job training, if that was going to be your your career path. If that's really what you were going to do, you could do it as long as you stood there, you hung there with them, and and you played it the way it's supposed to be played. Yeah, if you showed interest in like, hey, I, I want to go this route, they would take you in and be like, hey, all right, we'll show if you're you got to be You had to be de- dedicated, yeah. motivated and dedicated like 100%. Yeah. Um, and so when I when I left, um, I, orig- I had – Put in four orders to uh, to Fort Bragg, obviously, and I had to wait about eight months. Um, but and at the time, I think you guys will appreciate this. Uh, at that time, and this is when I I first met Russell. We were in First uh, Battalion, of 325th Airborne Infantry Regiment, and the battalion commander, the the O uh, O five at the time, uh, was a guy named uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dan McNeil. And so that's how far back I go because, you know, he later became Joint Chief of Staff. And stuff. Mm. So, uh, and the one thing I, when I first met him, he got my paperwork for the Q, the Special Forces Qualification Course, which is what it's called, to go to the, to the, sele- the school. He got my paperwork. I got called up there. And, and I didn't know, you know, I, I mean, I knew he was the lieutenant colonel, but I had never met him before. I was just a Joe now. And uh, he's got the big old nice-looking Special Forces tab. I'm like, He's going to sign that paperwork. I know he's going to sign that paperwork. <laughs> and of course he did. And then so in January of 88, 0188 was our class, and that's that's what started that. And then uh, following that, I ended up staying, after the course was over, I ended up staying at SWIC. Um, I, I, for some reason, I seemed to pick up Morse code, for some reason, pretty pretty good. Yeah. And so I was asked to stay at the Comel Committee for a little while, and I worked, I worked down there for a little bit. And then literally... Uh, a phone call came in, and uh, my life pretty much did a left turn. And uh, I went and 
put in an application uh, to go to a unit that was forming um, in an MI unit there at Fort Bragg. And then I, I went there and I stayed there uh, through the first Gulf War and everything. That was So I, I kind of went into the military intelligence field. We ran a strategic reconnaissance slash battlefield deception type of cell. Okay. And it was... Uh, so there was other federal agencies that were involved in it, and uh, it, it was it was a it was a cool gig. It, it was it was a lot of fun. Were How you? you oh, go ahead. And I were was you, just a peon. I was just like an E six at the time. So were you a comms guy in the like? What was, what's an echo? So an echo is is a as a, a special forces communications That's, sergeant. Yeah, yeah it, at that time, and that was one of the reasons I think why I got it because some of the uh, well. I'll just say, like, there, there was uh, items that were utilized and stuff that were, um, that, that back then were used against uh, adversaries that were um, so realistic, you, you couldn't tell. Uh, it was, it was amazing stuff, especially in the communications sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it did play a, a fairly significant fart, uh, uh, part in, um, uh, in Iraq and stuff, so, yeah. How do you get cool. good at Morse code? Yeah. <laughs> Become a comms guy. Yeah, I, I honestly, <laughs> I, I really don't. I know that they, uh, in the beginning, they were like, I remember there was like, uh, God, Russell, there was like 142 of us Practice. or something, right? Yeah, it was like, there was like, a, like the class, so then, I don't, I don't know, how, unfortunately, I don't know how it goes now, but then. They don't use it anymore. Yeah, they only had three phases, first, second, and third, but if you were going to be a comms guy, you had to go to the thing called. AMIC, which is Advanced International Morse Code. And I remember going down, and I'm like, advanced? I don't even know, like, the beginning of Morse Code. And so they said, there was 142 of us that started. And I'll tell you why I remember this. The instructor came up there, the, they call him a tax back then. The tack came up there, and he looked everybody over, and he goes, how many people can play any type of musical instrument? And back then, I, I loved playing guitar, and I was, I was okay with it, you know, but I, but I liked playing it. So, you know, it was 42 of us. Raised our hands, which is why I remember. 100 people failed out of AMIC, 42 passed. Huh. And, and to illustrate, illustrate it really quick, in order to, they had two requirements. To, just to pass AMIC, it was, you had, to, you had to send 13 groups a minute and you had to receive 13 groups a minute. But that wasn't for your tab. Your tab requirements were 15 and 15. So what is a group? It's five letters. Mm. So just to pass the class, you have to do 65 letters in one minute, which sounds like this. And mm. that whole time, you're sitting there writing, and you're not writing on, like, a nice piece of paper. You're writing on a little uh, – well, it's a, it's a pad that, that's utilized. Yeah. Yeah. Is, it like, is it like three taps, that's an A, four taps, that's a C? Well, like. well three, three taps is, a, is an S. Oh, okay. And then th- it's called a, uh, called a DIT. And then there's a da. A da is, is uh, so here's a dit. A da is you kind of hold it up a little bit longer. So two dits equals a da. So if you're doing SOS, it's dit-a-dit. It's not dit, dit, dit. It's a rhythm. It's dit-a-dit. And a da is da-da-da. It's not, it's not da. It's, it's like da-da-da. So do you think that, I mean, obviously, as you described that, you know, the difference between uh, the da's and the dits, and yeah. it's a more like a rhythm thing. It's it's absolutely. Is that why you think the all the people that played instruments? I do. Passed. I, yes, sir. I do. To this day, I I, I think he was spot on mm-hmm. because literally I remember 142 because literally 100 people failed. 
That's interesting. There was 42 of us that proceeded from AMIC. Then you go into first phase, which was brutal. And then you come back from first phase, hopefully. And then you go to second phase, which is your, your job. This is where you learn all about communications, all about various types of radios, all about various types of older radios that you may find in austere locations that you have the potential to deploy to once out of the queue course. Has a lot of that been replaced by just tech? I mean, tech is like now it's encrypted messages. I, and I, I'm, I'm sure. Um, no. we, we were using very, I mean, we were using the best that we had. Yeah. And, and I think it was probably. It was encrypted messages it, as well. Oh, but we used encrypted all the time. But it was, it was a different level. Those pads were, were special pads. You can, once you're done, you, you light them and it's just flash paper. And it's just, it, was, they, it was all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. But it was cool. But as, as, as tech developed, the Singar's radio, which, which took uh, um, the old uh, 104s out, happened like probably, I don't know, maybe a, a year and a half later. Mm-hmm. So then you had to learn this thing. And you're like, oh, my God. What, you know? and, and then, of course, in a forward-deployed area, we'd usually revert back to, like, sat phones and stuff like that. So that's... Yeah. It's just a little bit easier, but you still have to know. You got to remember, I'm a teacher. If I'm teaching a foreign military, I'm not only teaching them tactics to defend their country and to aggress against the bad guy. I also have to teach that that person how to communicate with deployed units. And so as a comps guy, my responsibilities are I have to be able to explain to them in very you know, down-to-earth terminology, this type of radio is able to do this. This type of wire is able to transmit this. This type of field-expedient antenna can punch stuff out this far. And so it's things like that. And it, it was it was cool. I mean, it was a lot of cool information, you know. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah, it was, it, was a lot, it was a lot of fun. And so you did that till 03? Is that right? Oh, no, 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 no. So I, I, I stayed, total was about... Uh, about four years total uh, with the group. And then uh, I went to MI. And then from MI, um, I got, uh, I spent, in 91 at Fort Bragg, we lost, uh, I don't know how many uh, people just bailed out of the Army after the first Gulf. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into the politics of things, but there was a lot of people that held to their conviction. Con- Convictions. What and uh, who was in charge? And they, well, what was yeah? What was the issue back then? Because my my dad, well, so Clinton, I, my dad was in the know, Gulf War. Yeah, he was in the army, mm-hmm. um, and they booted him. Uh, he was a lieutenant colonel. They booted him right after the Gulf War because they were doing cutbacks. I remember that. My dad. I remember that whole time for us because that was yep. a big. Mm-hmm. My dad was ticked. He was frustrated. He loved the army, yep. uh, but they just. I think Clinton was, was in charge. Then. It was, he was 100% cutbacks. Clinton. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, like I said, I don't. I'm not going to get. Well, yeah, it's but just, it is what it is. Yeah, call it what it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and it was all that. Um, and there was a lot of people. Uh, my buddy Ray uh, in one that after 10 years he was like, you know, no, he's a he was a, he's a good man of conviction. He used to fly with uh, 160th over in Campbell and stuff like that. And uh, he and he was also in in my unit. We had a we had a lot of different people in, in that MI unit, and. Uh, he was like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not going to stand for this stuff. And, and he got out. So long story as short as possible. Uh, yes. They needed about, they needed about, about 600 sergeants and NCOs that were combat veterans. And the, the Department of Defense's idea was take 600 sergeants 
spread them out to, I don't know, like a hundred friggin' recruiting stations for one year to boot the numbers back up in 92 and 93. Mm -hmm. Because so many people left when they started seeing all the cutbacks. So many people got cut and, and left. It, it, it really, really, I know the news didn't really portray it, but it, it devastated us. Oh, yeah. And it was bad. So you kind of got voluntold. I did that for a year. Thank God I got to come back to brag because it was a long year, but it was worth <laughs> it to a certain degree. And then um, spent spent time with the, the mighty 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment and then uh, got voluntold I'm going to be a drill sergeant for a couple years, for two years, and uh, did that and how uh, how hard was it when you did that year to get people to join? It was beyond extremely difficult. And, you know, as much as I could never be a recruiter, uh, you know, my, my bray is off to them because— Oh, they got a difficult job. It is it is a legit difficult job. Yeah. And I can't even imagine today. So my I, I bring that up. My son just enlisted. <laughs> oh, uh, good for right? him. So he's, Tell him he's thank you for in that. the Marines. And, uh, you Excellent. know, I was talking to the recruiters when I took him down there because— Obviously, I went down to make sure. I'm like, you guys aren't pulling any fast ones. Uh, but I was, you know, I was talking. I'm like, hey, dude, how how is like the retention now and like getting people to join? And they're like, dude, once one a month. One a month. Yeah. They're like that because I was like, what's your quota? He's like, right now, one a month. And I'm like, dang, yeah, that's nuts. And the the they are so stringent on who they let in too. Right. I mean, they, my my son, who, you know, no health problems, like, mm-hmm. um, but they literally were like scouring his record and they're like oh you had dental work done when you were 13 like well they gave you this drug wow and so they're like we can't we have to review that and i'm looking at them like dude yeah. i remember when i joined <laughs> it, i was like they were like oh you want to come like come on in and it was no no questions asked <laughs> same thing the thing it was like are you have you done drugs are you on drugs now okay you're good you're good yeah <laughs> yeah no i, I i'm tracking it was it was it was extremely difficult. Yeah. I got. I went to uh, Manchester Recruiting Station in St. Louis, Missouri. I, I've never been to St. Louis. It was hard. And I wasn't uh, – I mean, you had to go to the school cause, because by, by whatever, Forcecom – or I'm sorry, uh, it was TRADOC standards. Uh, you, you couldn't go to a recruiting station and work out if you didn't. But um, I wasn't a recruiter, you know. I, I was there. And the, the thing was, from where you left – from kind of dictated everything. I just came from Bragg. Uh, I'm going to continue wearing my spit shine jump boots, my Cochrane jump boots. I'm going to blouse my dress pants and I'm going to still wear my beret. And so that was kind of my thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. The recruiters that were like the real recruiters that were stationed there um, were, were pretty cool. I, you know, I would link up with one of them and we'd go out and do stuff. But me, I tried to focus in on uh, good people and I tried to pull them into the, the airborne community and maybe the special operations community down the road so that's yeah, that was him, that was my thing have them reaching for the stars you reach know? for the like, stars hey, man mm-hmm. yeah, i had some cool it, go big yep cool airborne videos people blasting out the doors and some halo stuff you know it, it was just like to get them pumped up but but we had uh you know i'd say a modicum of success it wasn't you know their 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 uh recruiting goal back then was um three uh, what was it called? Three three A, I think, which was a they they needed to have three high school graduates a month, and I was like, well, that seems like a lot, and it, yeah. it is a lot. I mean, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff like private schools 
they, they don't have to let you come in. And that was an, an issue because we had several private schools. The public schools have to, but the private ones don't. And we, we got good people out of public schools, but sometimes it was very difficult to even get in to talk to, to kids in private schools. Oh, I'm sure. You know, so, I mean, I get it, but it was just, it made things a little bit difficult and stuff. So, um, after that, I, like I said, I, I was a, a drill sergeant and then, um, I was able to, uh, uh, back then, uh, that was in 90, 90 96. Um, and after, uh, if you do, if you're successful, the way the army did it then, if you're successful as a drill sergeant, um, you get to, you get one pick in your career of what assignment you want to do. And so just to illustrate how unintelligent of a human being I really am, <laughs> my buddy, Rob Gibb, I hope you're listening, Rob, uh, who's still here in Florida. Um, it got time. We were getting close and we were talking one day. We had the privates out on the friggin' range and just, I'm just clubbing them in the head every now and then, you know, like, oh my God, please. So had a good time. It was fun. So I look at Rob, I go, so what are you going to do? He's like, I'm already working it. I'm like, what? He's like, I hope you don't ever get in trouble. I doubt he will. Though. But he goes, I'm, I'm going to, he said, dude, I am going to go take over as the NCOIC of Central Florida at, in their ROTC program. And I'm like, wow. He goes, I'm going to do four more years. He had 16 and we both, uh, yeah, we both had 16. He goes, and I'm out and I'm going to retire right there. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, what a great idea. Me? <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm going to go back to jumping out of airplanes, and then, but this time I want to go to Italy because I've never jumped out of airplanes in Italy. I'm stupid, man. I'm not, I'm not smart <laughs> at all. And uh, I had a, I had, um, it was an exciting, over there, uh, you're like the, the 911 for Europe. And, uh, but we had a lot of cool things that happened. We got to reactivate the, the 173rd Airborne Brigade, which if you go back in history and look at Vietnam, they, they had the most Purple Hearts and, uh, mm. They were a hardcore airborne unit in Vietnam, yeah. but we, but uh, I was one of the jump masters. I was an aircraft number two uh, with the guide on um, that we got to to activate reactivate the one seventy third. We were the one five zero eighth airborne combat team then, so that was a humongous, humongous, humongous honor. You know, oh, big, that's cool. It was a big honor. Um, got to do some pretty cool uh, operations, um, and then uh, we got sucked into Bosnia Herzegovina at the tail end and stuff. Of course, um, worked with tenth group. Uh, Operationally, there uh, our platoon um, down in Kosovo uh, for a little bit, and uh, that was a that was a rough one. Uh, we were the um, and you can Google this uh, anytime. Um, we were and as far as I know, are still are the only uh, American airborne unit to parachute into uh, Kosovo. Uh, it happened on first of October. 1999, and I lost my uh, my ranger medic, uh, Doc Pringle, on the jump in. Uh, was it a? It was it was supposed to be um, a show of force, but the uh, that kind of kind of went out the window later on down the road, and so we, we got to um, assist uh, on an operation to go try to track things down and mm. people down and whatnot. And so it was. Is good. that how? Your, your uh, medic lost his life? or No, my, my medic lost. He was, so we were coming in uh, very, very low about, we, we left Aviano. Um, we were coming in at about, normally we would drop at about 800 feet. Um, we came in probably 
650, 700. The bad news was we had, uh, if I remember correctly, nine aircraft. The Serbs uh, locked onto a couple of the aircraft, and all of a sudden we're blasting chafe, chafe. and flares. And they opened the doors. No, it was a static jump master, so the jump master stayed. He, he wasn't the last guy out like we normally are. Static jump master, they lined him up. And what's, what haunts me to this day, and it's, I don't want to get, I, I'm a, I can get emotional about this stuff because it's, it's, it, for me, it's, this is where the horses are going to come into play, mm-hmm. um, one of many ghosts. But I remember Doc was number 10 and I was number 11. And I remember when we stood up and you got so much stuff on. And it's, and Doc, he had his medic bag. I mean, literally his medic bag was like from his waist to his toes big. If you can, if you can fathom that. I mean, the thing had to be 85, 90 pounds. It was a combat medic bag. Oh, yeah. It's not a, it's not a, we're going out to play medic bag. This is a friggin' legit. And he was like one of the toughest ranger medics I've ever met in my life. And I was honored to have him. And I remember... I remember the green the flares are going off, and we're like, oh, and the planes are rocking. I'm like, let's get that. I, I, that's why I love jumping out of them because I hate flying in airplanes. <laughs> I'm getting the hell off of that aircraft one way or the other. Green light came on, you know, everybody started rushing, and we're going. And I remember watching Doc, and I I saw, I remember seeing his static line, and it was waving. I was like, oh, and in my mind, I was like, oh, he blew some snow bands, whatever. And so he went out, and I saw the line go straight down. I'm like, oh. Man, I hope he's not towed. And I, but I'm right on him. I'm right out the door behind him. We open up. I hear all kinds of stuff going on. Land fast. I mean, like, literally, shoots open, great. Oh, no. Lower rucksack, boom, hit the ground. It was literally that fast. Grab all my stuff. I, I don't see Doc. I'm, but we all know the perimeter that we're going. We know the point that we have to go to off of that, that field that we jumped into. So everybody's advancing that way, right? I got to get up there. I'm a platoon sergeant. I got to get everybody set in. I got to start getting head counts. I got to get get the information off the first sergeant. You know, there's a lot of lot of things. I got to get my all. Oh, I got four squads I'm in charge of. I got 40 guys I got to work with. So I, I get up there. We get set up, and I'm like, where, where is Doc at? Because he's for 20 months he'd been on my back. He was always. I mean, I just look and there's Doc. Okay, good. Yeah. Where's my radio guy? Okay, there he is. Great. Okay, good. Let's go. We got my. I got the headquarters. I'm out. Let's roll. You know, we can set up our perimeter. All right, machine gun here, machine gun, you know, and start rocking it. Right. I'm like, where, where is Doc at? About, I don't know, maybe 11, maybe tops 15 minutes. First Sergeant had said, hey, uh, where are you guys at? You know, ammo, ammo, casualty equipment, whatever. Give me an ace report. Boom, boom, boom. I was like, I, I have no idea where Doc's at. Uh, we need to s- s- find where. Right about that time, some private comes running in. And he was looking for First Sergeant. He was like, hey, First Sergeant. Uh, Ranger Tony Mendoza. God bless you, Tony. Um, he he comes in, he's like, hey, we had a guy burn in. So, in and I'm not sure how, how you all use the term burn in. Yeah, um, it's the same. Oh, okay. So, when you, you can have a hard landing, mm-hmm. feed ass head, knock yourself out type thing, which I've done many times. <laughs> but when you, when you burn in, you tell me you've burned in, that's, you're done. So this kid comes running in, and he's like, Sarge, uh, I got to get with the first sergeant. I was like, he's over there. I was like, what's going on? He goes, we had somebody burn in. And I'm like, stop, because he was a private. You know, he's, I was like, what do you mean burn in? Like, was it a, a total malfunction or what? And he was like, he's like, yeah, it looked like it was a total malfunction. He's on the ground. Uh, and I was like, oh, sh-. and I go, what was his name? And he said some weird name, like, 
fungal or something. It was it it wasn't it wasn't Pringle, and I distinctly remember that because I'm like oh, I don't know who that is. Maybe it's another another platoon or something. And um, so a couple minutes passed by, and I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, let me reach out and see what's going on. It was Doc, mm-hmm. and basically what had happened after the investigation was over. He he had on a new shoot, and I don't know how y'all did it, but in my world, if I if Russell was a rigger, a parachute rigger, and I was going to draw my parachute from him, and it was brand new, I would give it right back to him and say, give me, like, that one. That's beat to hell, because I know that that's been used, and I know that it's worked. Yeah. Well, Doc jumped a brand new parachute. The static line, remember when I said we went out the door, and that static line went right to yeah. the... Yeah. It was about somewhere between, like, I think 36 and 42 inches or something like that. I don't remember the exact distance. It ruptured, and it broke. And because we were so Jeez. low, he never, he went out 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, and hit the ground, still in that position. Yeah. When they found him, believe it or not, he was still alive, unbelievable, but was basically jelly on the inside. They loaded it. They we've got we got uh, two emergency Blackhawks that came in from Camp Bonstu, I think it was, and they came in hot, hot. They loaded them up, and unfortunately, uh, one October of 1999, uh, Sergeant Doc Pringle went to Valhalla uh, at 1410 uh, and routed into Montenegro. So he was every bit a friggin' warrior as you could ever ask. And uh, so I, I wear, I wear, I, it, I know you guys can't see it, but it says roll call on my arm. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to Randy about this. And, and I've, I've talked to a lot of veterans and a lot of like cops and stuff like that, because after I got out of the military and everything, I ended up working for Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I retired from there and I, I loved it. I loved it. It was hard. It was fun. It was exciting. Um, but it it took it takes your toll on you and mentally and physically. Oh, I'm uh, sure it, it it really does, especially then. Um, but it's roll call, and of all the broken bones, and I've got a lot, and I've got a lot of pins, plates, and metal in my body. I have zero right. I have no right whatsoever to ever complain about a single friggin' thing, not one. All I got to do is go like that. There's not a single person on my arm that wouldn't change positions with me right here, right now, without a doubt. And that's that's kind of like one of my little things that keeps me on the ledge, yeah. honestly. it's it, it, I get up. I go outside. I look up. I, I, I give thanks every single day, every day. And I have told so many people, there's people that have come to, to our ranch in Nevada, and now I want to get them over here in Aiken, where we're at in South Carolina, now that we moved over here, that it's, it's not the big grandiose things, man. It's the small things. And you, once you appreciate, you learn how to appreciate it, because you, some people don't know to do that. They don't know to appreciate it. No. And they don't know how to appreciate it. It's not their fault. They just they haven't been trained yet. They don't, they don't know. You know, it's like working with wild horses. That horse is far smarter than I could ever be. That horse knows far more than I could ever know. 
but in order for me to be the teacher of the horse, I got to be the student first. So I had to, I have to go through the things that that horse kind of experiences in a humanistic way. It's no different. It's absolutely no different. Let's hear. About, let's hear about that. I want to hear like so because yeah. I want I want to hear about the horses and absolutely. how you integrate those. Absolutely. So, um, everybody's heard about like uh, equine therapy and, and the, the benefits of it, and yeah. it's it's true, hands down, true as true can be. At Bragg. Uh, or in, in the military, you're kind of put in a position, especially as you go up in rank, where you kind of have to become a, a quasi-historian. You have to know history, especially about your branch of the service. So, one, you don't screw stuff up that was screwed up before, and two, you gain benefits from the things that went well. And that's, that's part of it. And when you got good commanders, sometimes they, they, they have a reading list. When you get up to, like, E7, E8, E9 rank, like I did, they, they like... These are required readings. If you're going to read these, Sarge, period, end of story. All right, copy that. No, it's good. It's good training, right? So I always had a big thing about Western history and, like, the cavalry and stuff like that. I just, I just loved it because I've always loved horses. But I haven't always been a horse guy. I, I bounced around too much. I, I didn't, never had an opportunity. So it was kind of later in life that when it hit me, I used to go to the coast when I had a little free time and see the beautiful horses that they would run over. Uh, from the islands and stuff uh, off of North Carolina, Oak Croak and uh, the Corolla herd and stuff like that. It was just, it was the coolest thing ever. But they weren't out west. And I had known what Mustangs were. I just, I didn't, I wanted to see them for the first time. So in order to learn about them, my, my wife, who is a, um, a federal investigator, she's a federal agent, and I'll just leave it at that currently, uh, when I retired, I retired at Bragg in 03, and um, within about two months, I got rehired with Department of Defense, basically doing the same thing, uh, running the anti-terrorism program for all of Fort Bragg. That's what I ended up doing, uh, working with JSOC, working with all the units uh, in the 82nd and 18th Airborne Corps and stuff like that. In that capacity, uh, one day, my wife was sitting there on her computer, and there's a... Uh, government job site, US, US, uh, jobs.gov, uh, that you can go, and that's where you apply for, like, positions in the government. And she, she had a great position. Well, she kind of threw in a, a resume just, 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 you know, for giggles and stuff. And she got a hit back, and they're like, yeah. And it was in Las Vegas, Nevada, as a, as a, a federal investigator. And I'm like, well, hold, hold up. What about me? Uh, Hello. <laughs> so one thing led to another. Literally within like a three month period, she got the position, and it w- and it was a, a promotion. And she's going out there. <sighs> this is when we talk about God has a plan. He's got the universe set. There's no doubt about that. So she's in in the base uh, BX at, at Nellis Air Force Base. Because she had a little nondescript uh, building there, office there. And she ran into uh, a friend of ours who was an old team guy from 3-7. And we had all worked together at Bragg as well uh, after I retired when I was with security and intel and, and all that. And so so had Jill. And we did a lot of stuff there. And uh, so she's like, yeah, you know, Brian's still at Bragg and... 
what are you doing now? And he goes, uh, I'm the force protection officer for Nellis Air Force Base. Huh. And under the force protection roof, there's several pillars, one of them being anti-terrorism, obviously. And it just so happens that he needed an anti-terrorism officer. So there was a, a master sergeant in the Air Force that was getting ready to retire that applied. They made the position, and then there was me. And I'm already at the installation level. I'm already, I've got all the plans, policy. I'll just, Department of the Army, Department of Air Force, there you go. There's your whole AT program, you know. And so I ended up getting the job, and that's how I got out there. As soon as I got out there, I told my wife, I, I got to go see Mustangs. I got I to gotta see what these horses look like. I want to see them in the wild. And I was just so enthralled about being out west. It was like it sparked something inside me that I, I, I didn't even really know it was there, but I just always felt it. Mm-hmm. And so we did. And the next thing you know, uh, my garage door falls off. And the guy that was fixing the door, I, I'm telling him about the horses, how I want to see these Mustangs and all that, and we're, we're fairly new. And he goes, you want to see a Mustang? I'm like, yeah. He goes, car or horse? I go, horse. And he goes, let me get this fixed, and I'll show you where one's at. And so that was my, what later became my very first Mustang, Rio, my beautiful, beautiful boy. Uh, that Unfortunately, he, he's no longer with us. He's crossed the bridge. But um, so that's how I got the first one. And after that, I was. So continue. you went out and bought one. Well, it really you like looked, lasso him. Like no, nope, no, nope, you can't do that. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about that here in just a second. Um, he took me to where this poor horse was at. It was sitting in a pen, ten by ten, no other horses around, by himself. He was skinny, and he looked friggin' miserable. And I was so upset. I found out who owned that horse. The guy had nine other horses, and then the one Mustang. It was all quarter horses and stuff. And then the one Mustang, which is that, that happens a lot. And that's a whole different story. I was so upset. I said, I'll give you a dollar for that horse. And I'm going to take that horse no matter what. And if you even attempt to stop me, it's not going to end well because I'm taking that horse. And we did my father-in-law, me, it took us, I don't know, like four hours to get that horse into a trailer, but we got that horse into a trailer and I call my wife and I'm like, yeah, Guess what? I got a I got a Mustang, for and, a dollar. Uh, for a dollar, yeah. <laughs> and uh, have no idea where to do with it because I, yeah. I didn't know where to put it. I don't know how to train it. How I don't big know of how a yard it. did you have? Oh no, no, there was no yard. This was this was in a gated <laughs> community that we lived because we had our my in laws living with us, and so uh, we ended up finding a place to board him and stuff. And that's what that's that is that was the catalyst. That's what that's what started the whole thing. And then I got completely out of my mind addicted to him. Um, Is it something special about Mustangs yes. versus others? Yes. Okay. So I, I try not to work with domestic horses. I, I have for friends and friends of friends over the years. But I, I really, people call and like, oh, you work with wild horses? Yeah. Well, I have a horse that's, but or stop. No, that's, you either did something wrong or you, you ruined your horse. Now, I, I, when you get these beautiful animals, it's a clean slate. You know, I got people, and don't get me wrong, I love all horses. I, I'm a horse freak. But 99% of the horses on this planet are generally bred for very specific reasons, whether it's rodeo reasons like uh, tie-down events, barrel racing, 
things like that. Um, yeah. Or if it's for like eventing, jumping, dressage, uh, if it's for endurance, whatever. The Mustang is built for one thing only, and that's friggin' survival. That gives that horse automatic street cred. Automatic. He, he, that, that horse can tell something that fast. It, it's the most amazing thing to see. What do you, so what do you mean when it, when you say it's built for survival? So the horse is born. It's a, they're feral horses. First, first off, let, it, it, since we're gonna, you want me to really get into it, I'm going to get into it and explain something. And this is for all the people out there that are like these armchair warriors on the Facebook stuff that are like, oh, don't do this and don't kill those. And, but they have no idea. They're hurting the cause. They're not helping the cause, man. These horses are feral stock that we can trace back at least until uh, uh, to fifteen nineteen when Cortez came over and blew through Mexico. Uh, King and Queen of Spain gave them sixteen horses that we know the names of, and they used them. And those initial Spanish bloodlines. Back then, they didn't have corrals and stuff. They just kind of let them graze freely. Over the course of the next decades of conquistadors coming through and then just Europeans coming in into the country, all these horses were coming down from Mexico, coming up into our country, which really wasn't our country at the time, but they, they were moving up there. And then you got the Europeans coming into our country, forming our country, and eventually out west is where their paths crossed. And they produced these multi-blood horses, which are now the Mustangs. Mm. The beauty and the thing that, uh, if there's <coughs> any takeaway, it's this is one of them. These are our country's horses, and they're cousins to Burrow, mind you, because we've used them just as much. But these horses are literally how our country was founded. There was no roads, there was trails. There was no vehicles. There was horses. These horses is how we completed our manifest destiny from one coast to the other. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And when you look to this day, when we do adoptions, we talk to the adopter and we convince them, once I'm able to get up to the horse and the horse trusts me enough where I can pull about 40 hairs, we send them down to Dr. Cothran down at Texas A&M University and they do a DNA test. When we get the DNA sheet back, it's amazing. It's three columns, one, two, and three. Your primary bloodline, the secondary bloodline, tertiary bloodline, and then there's 50 breeds. Those, those 50 stock, those 50 breeds that are on that thing are based all the way back to at least 1519, okay? And, and then forward, all the bloodlines we got. When you look, it's so cool to tell adopters, like, oh, look, you've got Turkmen. Uh, oh, you got Galicino. Oh, oh, you even got, you know, uh, Hanoverian. That's why you got the big legs, which is German. But think about it. These are our country's horses because they carry the same exact blood that you, you, me, Randy, Russell, we all have that mixed blood of all of our people that have came from over water to come to this country, to establish this country as it is on the blood of these animals that they brought with them. There, that is why in 1973, Congress passed, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, 71, Congress passed a, uh, the Wild Horse and Burrow Act. It's called the Roaming Free Wild Horse and Burrow Act, signed by Richard M. Nixon. And when you read the preamble, 
They mm-hmm. talk because they recognize not only the historical importance of them, but also because they are a thriving, living part of our ecosystem of this country. That's how important they are. There are millions of horses in this country, as everybody knows. Millions. Not one of them, except for the Mustang, has a congressional act that protects them. Period. <laughs> and that's legit. That's awesome. I mean, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. You know? And most uh, people don't. Yeah. They don't, they don't realize it because they don't get into the weeds of like doing DNA testing and stuff like that. And that is one of the things. So when you look on our website, funnyfarmmustangs.org, O-R-G, when you look at the website, it's all about history. I, I try to make it very historical so people understand the history of it because, honestly, it's a political hot potato. It, it really is, and, and we'll dive into that. Well, real quick, if yep. – I mean, so is what you're saying that um, they're about the – most American, just like we were formed yes. by Europeans coming over, and well, from all, all from every country that our blood is made of, that have come to this country to make this country, yeah. that's what they brought that stock with them. It's like the most American horse. It is the American horse. Mm. That's why it's a national wild horse and burrow program by the BLM, the the Bureau of Land Management. Yeah, that's that's why it's not. American Quarter Horse Association. It's not the Thoroughbred Association, although they, you know, well, my horse was $400,000. I got a million-dollar Mustang sitting out in my, my, my pasture right now. I never even knew that. Yeah. <laughs> he's worth more than a million dollars as far as I'm concerned. Why? Because he's an American. So <laughs> other breeds, like, are they, like, more purebreds and this? And yeah. then these are Mustangs are the, typically feral, wild. Well, so, so I, I want to, and I want everybody in the whole planet to know, understand these words. Yeah, they're feral. They're feral horses, of course. They're not wild horses. They're born, they're raised, and they thrive in the wild. The wild, why the BLM ever even made that name drives me crazy. Because they're like, the wild horse, stop. It's not that they're wild. You can go and stand on George, one of my Mustangs right now, if you want. Any one of you guys. You can come up to my place, I'll put you on George. You can sit there and stand on him and wave to the, anybody you want. That's your wild horse for you. No, they're not wild. They were born and raised in the wild. Uh But because of that, their level of intelligence and their ability to get it is unbelievable. Mm. 99% of the horses are most of them, well, maybe not 99%, but there's so many that are purebred. And there's nothing wrong with purebred because you try to keep good, clean lines. But these horses have got so much of the beautiful bloodlines from all over the world, they're amazing. And they are nature's ATV, man. There's nothing they can't do out there. There's nothing, no place they can't go. And they can be trained if you have worked with them and you understand the psychology of the horse that lives in the wild. And this is the thing, this is one of the reasons why Mustangs sometimes carry a bad connotation. And it's mainly because people tried to train them like you would train a quarter horse that was born and raised in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Well, that friggin' horse is, is like part of your family. I mean, you could tell it to go sit on the couch, and it probably would, you know, because you've had it, you 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 had it born in your backyard in a foaling stall, and you from well, day one. Well, he wasn't. One, they're not born free, right? You mm-hmm. from day one, you've been doing what? Oh, my little foal. Oh, I help mama milk it. Oh, I'll pet it, and, and doing the right thing because you're. Imp- it's called imprinting. You want to imprint the human part of it, but go out in the go out in the wild and take an eleven year old stud stallion that's been out there fighting for his mares and his foals. For age two on, whole different psychology, man, when it comes to working with them. Trust me. 
Yeah, sounds like whole my, different psychology. Sounds like my kids. Can you come <laughs> over to my house and train my feral kids? Exactly, exactly. It's a whole different psychology. And I try to, I try to impress that upon, upon especially adopters and stuff like that. It's like you can't train these guys like they're quarter horses. Not now. You have to do what's called gentling. We don't break anything. If something breaks, what do I got to do? I got to fix it, right? I hate the term. I cannot stand. Oh, I, oh, I broke twelve horses. Well. Pfft. Did you fix all 12 horses or what happened to them? Because it's a stupid term and makes absolutely no sense. Why am I going to break the spirit of a beautiful animal like this? What do you think fear and pain, do you think that horse is actually wanting to do something for me? Or do you think that horse is so afraid of me, it's going to do something for me? Big difference. So we don't practice that. We practice strict gentling. And it's very time-consuming. It's very slow. It's very methodical. But you know what? I could care less. If I'm the guy doing it, you're on my timeline, and you're on that horse's timeline. And sometimes a training session will be 15 minutes. Sometimes that training session will be 15 hours. It just just depends. Depends on the horse, it the personality of the, on horse. the horse. That's right. My mentor and very good friend, Ed Dominguez, uh, to me is probably one of the greatest horsemen on this planet and a true son of Texas. Shout out to you, Ed. Uh, and I still learn from him to this day. Took a chance with me, didn't know anything about horses and damn sure about Mustangs, but now I got this beautiful white Mustang named Rio. I had no idea. I approached him. He said, well, I'll charge you $75 an hour. I'm like, oh, I, I can't afford that. Are you kidding me? And I was like, I was kind of hoping you'd, like, maybe you can show me what to do so I can do it, you know? And he did. He took the chance with me. And he would have me go out in the desert especially when I started getting horses, my own, multiple horses, and then uh, started getting into the adoption process real heavy. Um, and I would go out there, and he would be like, okay, we're going to go find a band of horses, and you follow them, have my little notebook and my little pen and everything, and I want you to write down what the mare is doing with the foals, the mama is doing with the, the youngsters. I want you to write down what the stud is doing. How is he walking? Where is he walking? What sounds is he making? Oh, I got notes, man. For days. I got so many notebooks of notes from Ed. And then the next day he would come down and we would pick one of the horses up for adoption. He's like, now I'm going to show you some training techniques passed down from my family since about 1840 in South Texas that they've been doing with horses. And amazing. And that's how you learn the art of gentling properly. And like I said, it may take... Uh, it may, it, I, I've had horses where I literally, within a couple of days, I can get, get up to their back and actually touch them. And then I've had horses that, um, as part of the program, uh, day 89, I'm still, you know, trying to get up there and, like, get friendly with them. They just, it's just how it is. Yeah. But, that's, but it's knowing the psychology of the horse. And once you're in, you're in for life. When you talk about loyalty, that's loyalty. You mean the horse? The horses. Yeah. And so this, I'm going to segue that into talking about the importance of these guys. For me, and you and several other people, Russell and Dave, your, your things too, you know, we always pride ourselves on being good warriors and, 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 and training and, 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 and being able to push stuff off. But at least in my case, I've had many nights, uh, I call them ghosts. I don't call them demons. I'm scared of demons. I don't like demons. I, don't like demons. <laughs> I call them ghosts. 
And I've had plenty of ghosts come and visit over the years. Thankfully, less now than before, but I have. And it's just, you know, and you try to deal with it. And I've had some, some moments. Thank God I've got an amazing wife that oh, has always yes. backed me 100%. She was, she was in the Army, did seven years, jumped out of airplanes, held out of helicopters. She was a MI. She was a, a CI, a counter-intel, uh, Arab linguist, deployed to Middle East with Fifth Group as an Arab linguist. And now, like I said, she's a, a, fed, a federal agent. But amazing woman has always stuck with me and has is, is, is helped me. But those horses, I could go up to those horses and tell them all my secrets and know they'll take it straight to the grave. And that's the importance of them. That is the importance of them. You can talk to them. And they can feel your energy so much. If I was to approach a horse, especially the Mustangs, but if I was to approach, like, say, one of my Mustangs, they automatically know, like, if I'm, if I'm coming at them, they can tell. They'll, they'll, like, you can see them. They'll, like, their hackles will stand up, or their head will shift a little bit, or they'll cock their head, or they may take a step back, like, uh-oh, what's, what's up with Daddy if I'm having a rough day? Yeah. But they also can tell if I'm having a different type of rough day and I'm working at get, keeping those ghosts away from me. And they come right up to you. They'll put their head right into you. They'll just, they just, they, they know. They, they just friggin' know. And it's amazing to me how that keeps you on the ledge so much. So we started reaching out to vets. We reached out to a lot of police officers on my department quietly. And we even got into working with some autistic kids, which is, I want to read you a beautiful story, and one in particular that we are all in tears about. I can't tell you, at least especially with cops in my department, how many times, my rule was simply this. Text me or call me that I know that you're coming so I, I don't meet you with, you know, a weapon system of some type that I have many of because <laughs> that's just how I am. <laughs> So I know who you are, you know. Here's the code to the gate. You can come in if you want to talk. I got two ears and they work just fine. If you don't want to say a word, you don't have to say a word. You want to spend 15 minutes, you spend 15 minutes. You want to spend 15 days, you can spend 15 days. I don't care. It has nothing to do with us. It's about you finding that thing inside with those horses. Because my horses, you can go up and just love on all day long. They, 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 they eat it up all day. Because we've got Ben. You can ask Russell. He's been there many, many times. And the, bur and the burros, yeah. just as bad. They're just as, the burros are sometimes even worse. They'll come up and just want to just love on you completely. <laughs> They're amazing. And you can't help but not feel that. It is literally impossible for a human being to not feel the stress come off of you. You just, you can't, it's impossible. And so for us... That's a huge thing. And that has really, that's really been one of the primary fundamental things that have always kept me on the ledge, especially in some dark nights. And I'm not afraid to admit, I mean, for years I didn't, but now I'm good with it because it's not me, it's the horses. And I want people to understand that's what these guys do. That's what they do for us. And so that's now what we do. We're still doing the adoptions, but I want to reach out to more veteran groups. I want to reach out to more police officers, more federal agents, things like that. Um, if you had to put it in like a sentence, you'd say, hey, these horses help heal trauma. Or they, not only, they not only help heal trauma, 
they help you heal bonds that have been ruined through events. They help the horses help you they help you analyze things and they help you think things through before you do something that you're probably going to regret. Yeah. They literally will make you stop and think about things. And you really can't you you it's like it's like you can't you can't not if that makes sense. It's just, it's impossible. I literally will get lost in with my horses. I mean, next thing you know, you know, I called you three times, and you know, I'm like, oh, oh sorry, you know, I'm with the horses, I got it turned down. I, you, you just can't. I've had guys come over, man, they've just in tears because they feel it, oh. and they realize like, I need to live here with you, and blah blah. blah. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. If, that, if that'll help you out, then you can for a while. Yeah, yeah that's guys, amazing. Yeah, it, they're amazing. They are amazing. Yeah, guys come over that uh, have oh. you had experiences where hey, I'm 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 at the verge of suicide. Or at the verge of well, we never, never on their way. They're they're de- we've definitely had people that were on their way for sure. Yeah, that we've definitely had a lot of people. Um, I was always we were always very careful. And I, we you don't want to pry too much. It's kind of like working with wild horses. And I and nowadays, honestly, I pretty much equate everything in life with working with wild horses. And I pretty much can. In this case, definitely, you don't want to go in too fast because that horse will tell you immediately. Nope, you ain't crossing this. This is the PONR. <laughs> you cross over it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you feel regretful for doing I'm, that. I'm thinking, like you know, the way you described um, just the Mustangs, their bloodline, <sighs> how how they are, their personalities. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you were describing it, I was like, that's a lot like special operators. A lot of guys that join special operations or law enforcement, like there, yep. you have these individuals that are, you can't be tamed mm-hmm. when you're little. A lot of us were rambunctious oh, and yes. like you were just and we can. Free see it in our sons now is there's just certain types of individuals that no matter what you do, they're going to run free. They're like, I'm not going to listen. So I think, and you know, hearing this and what these horses do for these individuals that join law enforcement or veterans that come, mm-hmm. come out and I, you know, and we all know how rough it is when you transition and it is rough. you still don't want to be tamed, but you're like, you know, you're almost uh, forced into it. Yeah, right. And, and that's I think the, that's and where the horses come involved. Like you can relate to them, mm-hmm. and they can relate to you. One hundred percent spot on, Eddie. You could not have said that in a more eloquent manner, and I'll tell you why. So, let's discuss the National Wild Horse and Burrow Program. I'll try to be succinct because I know this is a time show and stuff like that, but it is a lot of information. Yeah, but you got it, brother. Remember, I told you. Nixon signed the Congressional Act, 71, Roaming Free Wild Horse and Burrow Act. You can Google it all day, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, over the years, the Act has had amendments to it, just like any constitutional thing. So, when you, of the 10 western states, which is where the the Mustangs themselves are, um, they group... In areas, and I have to, I have to tell this, and it's on our website too. But I have to explain this to bring everything to your amazing point. They're brought into, they're, they they thrive, they live and thrive in areas called herd management areas. Okay, that's what the the BLM has deemed these things. These are herd management areas. These horses will stay in these areas, but they travel 15, 20, 30 miles a day. All they do is though, and it's beautiful to watch when you're following when you're following. They're called bands. 
They're not really a, a herd is when a bunch of bands or families come in. So you're following a band, and it's amazing to to watch because the mayor will be like, okay, we're good. This is the beauty of them. Ugh. I'm going to blow your mind on this. The mayor will start walking, and she's going to go, okay, come on. We're going to stop here. You're going to graze on whatever, some sage and big guy out and whatever. So then she's going to go, okay, now we're going to go over here. Now you're going to go to the bathroom over here. Now we're going to come over here. Oh, we're going to drink water over here. Now we're going to come over here, and we're going to rest for a little while. And the whole time, the stud's in the back just kind of, you know, it's got, a, got everybody sick and stuff, basically. And so, and she does this. And the beauty of it is you watch them travel in this beautiful, rhythmic pattern that's life. They literally, they literally follow life rhythmically. There is no straight lines. There is no stalls. There is no squares. It's this. Just like when we're gentling them. You have to remember that psychologically. And it's important for operators. It's important for soldiers. It's important for law enforcement to remember it's not a linear way of thinking, Mm -hmm. man. If you're struggling and those ghosts are right there, you can't just go, oh, I'm just going to do this. Mm. It's not that. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to, I've got to come at different directions. I've got to be rhythmic in life. They have to be rhythmic in life because that's how they survive. They can't stay in one spot here because something can go wrong in their mind. The truth is there's really, the mountain lion is like the only really natural predator other than man, but it's very rare indeed. Most yeah. most lions would never come down. They may try to take a foal out, but they won't last long. The coyotes, they don't have enough balls to do it. So, But they don't know that. Yeah, it's instinctive. It's instinctive. They don't know. They're built for survival, man. So they're always moving. They're always moving. They're always watching. They're always, always moving, but they move in the rhythm of life. So that's super interesting. It, it, it's almost like operators, vets, the, these guys, they've, it's are a, you saying like they've gotten out of that rhythm? They are broke, out of that. They, they're broken. And they get them, these horses, wild mustangs, get them back into that rhythmic They have no life. choice. You have no mm. choice. You have to, when I'm gentling a wild horse that's never been touched by a human being, I can't just walk up to the horse. Not going to end well at all for me. Okay, it's very rhythmic, it's very gentle, it's very slow. I have to go with the rhythm of life. I have to go with the rhythm of their life and how they think about it. So conversely, we have the HMAs, the government in their infinite wisdom. And when I say infinite wisdom, and I'm probably going to get a little pissed off, to be honest with you, but here's (laughs) the deal. You got a guy in D.C. wearing a $3,000 suit, which I will never own. He doesn't have hands like mine, I can guarantee you that, and he doesn't wear boots like I got. Promise. Yet, he's the one, or hell, even she's the one, that gets to dictate the management of wild horses and bros. You don't even know the difference between a Mustang and a friggin' thing. And I know it's the same, same old, same old. Yeah. But it's, it's the truth. Yeah, it is. It is the truth. They're so jacked up. Now, I'm not talking about the, the wild horse and burrow specialists down like at my level that, that helped me out with the adoption stuff. Those... Those folks are spot on, man, and they love them as much as I do. Not more, but at least as much. So these HMAs are given a number. They're assigned a number based on the government's hydrologist, based on the government's biologist, based on the government's 
freaking archaeologists and every other ologist that the government has, and they say, okay, this HMA right here can only support 200 head of horse, 25 burrow, 57 deer, 29 sage grouse, 14 friggin' frogs, you know, and a partridge and a juniper bush, <laughs> you know. But they, but they literally give it a, an assigned number. Why? Because the BLM is not only responsible for wild horse and burrows, they're responsible for the protection and the management of all public lands. So as much as I wish they could eat everything, the reality is they can't because they have to share. It has to be an e uh, ecological balance of our open range land or we don't have open range land. So it makes sense. The problem is the horrific management of said operation. As an example, so Nevada, which is the considered the wild horse and burrow state, we have more wild horse and burrows than any other of the 10 western states. But if you combine them all on the open range right now, and my numbers may be a little skewed, but probably not too far off, there's probably upwards of 80 to 85,000. The problem is the BLM says, the open range can only support, in this condition, about 27,500. Compounded with the fact that in the holding corrals, so hold that thought, you already see there's tens of thousands more than what the open range, according to the government, can support, which is bad. Now, when they do a gather, used to call it a roundup, but they call it a gather, they take this, this HMA, remember they said 200 horses. Well, the Forest Service and the BLM's... Um, uh, wild horse and burrow uh, specialists, they'll go out there, do counts. They do helicopters to count them and stuff. They'll be on the ground counting them. And so they say there's 310 horses there, so 110 have to come off. Where do those go? So they go to, yeah, they go to, and for anybody listening, it is 1,000% illegal to slaughter horses in our country, and we don't have any slaughter houses, regardless of what you read on Internet. So they go to the BLM's short-term holding facilities, now, the Wranglers and people that work there are legit great people. They got amazing hearts, and they care for these horses at literally as much as I do. They, they, their whole mission in life is to get every single one of them that comes in either sold outright or to the civilians or adopted, okay? After about two years, if they're not out of there, they move them to private long-term holding uh, management areas that are generally um, – contracted out to like farmers and ranchers that got like thousands of acres and then the government pays them a stipend of a, like I don't know a dollar fifty per head per day you know and basically for the rest of their life and you just turn them out onto five thousand acres and let them eat and whatever it's like so foster homes for it's, it's basically like fosters yeah, yeah. exactly um, and then the, the farmers and ranchers they're, they're given a little bit of a stipend to kind of to help out but they don't really do anything with the horses you know some are creative and, and they can bring some in and start working them a little bit and then they hey Open for adoption if you want to come. You know, they, you can do stuff like that. But most of them just turn them out. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, in the holding facilities right now, remember, we, is like, let's say 87,000 on the open range. They can only support 27,000. So, we're already 60,000 plus over on the open range, which has to come off. And also, there's about 50,000 in the holding corrals right now. So when you put that together, that's a, a lot of horses. The fear is going to be that somebody up in, up in the administration, regardless of what administration, one day decides, and they've tried it before, that 
they're like, well, why don't we eliminate them? Why don't we, why don't we humanely euthanize them and go back to the 30s, chopping them up into dog food, which if you look at the history of the wild horses, we killed so many Mustangs that a lady named Velma Johnson, Wild Horse Annie, was the one that started the grassroots program that culminated in the, the Congressional Act. Back in the 50s, she started it. She was following a rendering truck, and it was so much blood coming off of it because back then they could just go shoot wild horses. And in the 30s, they needed them for food. They were pet food and stuff like that because there was no appreciation, because there was no act. There was nothing to protect them. We almost eliminated all of our horses. Ours, yours, yours, mine, his, ours as a country. We almost eliminated them. And that's what started the whole grassroots program to get the Congressional Act. To be honest with you, we're like pretty close. We're to. pretty friggin' close, man. And there's there's things that the BLM could do to facilitate, but they they're so friggin' close minded. You try to, I mean, I, I, the people that I've worked with, the they they've tried to push things forward and they get shut down by like they don't even get past like the middle level. That sounds about right. Yeah, and you're just like, wh- what are what are some ideas? Uh, or like some contingencies well, that, that they could do. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll tell you a, a, a good example. <clears throat> I was, um, up until this year, well, my membership is still current. There is a nonprofit organization called Mustang Heritage Foundation. They're paid by the BLM uh, as a civilian organization, nonprofit, and they have a program called the TIP program, which is Trainer Incentive Program. So they reach out to people that know how to work gentle wild horses and burros, and if you, if you have a successful adoption for a wild horse, you get 90 days. You have, there's four basic requirements. You got to be able to approach the horse safely. You got to be able to halter. You got to be able to lead the horse properly and safely. You got to be able to brush its body, pick its feet, and then load and unload from the trailer. That's all you got to do. That's the gentling part. Me, because I love working with them, I'd put like eight or 10 exercises on them. I get them super, super safe. So the next stage would be working with saddle, but I don't, I don't do that. I'm too old now, but, but for the adopter, I do that for the adopter. And I make sure that the adopter, I mandate, if you get a horse from me, you're coming to our farm, and I'm gonna once it's safe, I'm putting you in with your horse. And I'm going to teach you everything that I'm teaching that horse because you're the one taking it home. And I want you to have that bond, right? But that TIP program, they donate. If uh, a successful adoption on a horse, you have 90 days, and they will donate to your organization $1,000, and if it's a borough, you get 120 days, and they'll donate uh, $750. Now, people are like, oh, $1,000, that's a lot. <laughs> First off, boarding a horse for a month is about $500. That's room and board, okay? $300 a month is gone. Like, it never makes it to three months, ever. And God forbid, and this is the, the part that I'm talking about, God forbid if you have a medical problem. Because as a tip trainer, Eddie calls me or sends me an email, says, hey, I saw you guys on YouTube or whatever. I, I want to be part of history. I want to make history and be part of history, which is why I tell people when you get a, a beautiful Mustang, not only are you making history, but you're becoming part of American history, every mm-hmm. single adoption. So I go up there or we go together, we go to a holding corral. I'm going to tell you probably which one you're going to pick because I'm sure you don't know. And I'm like, "Mm, you're not getting that because it looks pretty. We'll get this one instead because this is going to be safer for you. (laughs) We bring the horse back. That's when the adoption process starts. If something happens at adoption during the adoption process, I got to pay for it. Mm. I'm liable because I'm the one that signed the horse out. 
why can the government not move their stuff around and make a national, especially for the TIP program, but a national medical emergency trainer program where if you are training wild horses and burros for adoption and something happens to the horse, you can load the horse up, bring it to the vet, have the vet fix it. You don't have anything to do with the money. The vet just charges an office in the government for the cost. And the government should be able to come down and talk to make, if you make it nationally, like, look, you know, we'll square you guys away if you help us out, you know, blah, 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 push the history and stuff like that. And I'm quite sure if you did that, the number of trainers, good, competent trainers would be, there would be thousands that would stand up. But you don't see thousands of us. And it's mainly because you take two or three horses. I've had three, four horses for adoption in my property. And thankfully, things went went well, and we didn't have any medical episodes. But imagine if two of them colicked, which means uh, their stomach gets messed up, and sometimes mm-hmm. it could, they can die from it, but sometimes you got to have surgery. Imagine, six, that's six grand for one. Yeah. There's, there's so many things that they can do. The other thing drives me crazy. So we talk about FID missions and stuff like that, right? And we talk about working with uh, native populations and austere locations and stuff, and we try to support the indigenous populations, doing, you know, building a school, building a, uh, you know, medical facility, digging artesian wells, things like that. Why can we not do that out on the range? Why, if we are allowed to reseed a wildfire area, why is it that the government can't reseed some of the range using native grasses? I understand the government's position on it has to be preserved in its natural environment. I get it. I get it. But if this area had, you know, winter sage growing and now it doesn't, why can't we build an artesian well run some piping for a water trough like we do in some areas and then and put some new seed down and yeah. make the forage. I think some of that's because it's, 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 it's tough anything relying on strictly government, right? Because 100%. You have, you have someone uh, over that administration. Every time you say BLM, I'm having to like, okay, Bureau. Yeah, it's the real BLM, the, <laughs> the Bureau of Land Management. I'm, yeah. I, I'm sorry, Bureau of Land Management. It's just it's a mouthful to say. I'm like, that had to do with horses? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but definitely not. I, I think of, I think of, you know, the, the obviously part would have to be, I think, I think in the mindset of private, right? Mm-hmm. I think of private, I think of business, I think of, you know, it, it almost have, I'd almost see the answer being somewhere in a conjunction with them probably leans more towards private that you get, um, well, I mean, dude, the amount of wealth here in America and men that growing up poor, you, you hear, you have a poor mindset Mm -hmm. or I did. And, um, it was like, oh, rich people, corporation, like they're horrible, horrible people. And my experience has been, Man, the more and more people that I've gotten to know that are, I mean, incredibly well, are people. some of the most giving, mm-hmm. you know, good yeah. men. And they, in giving them incentives, also, I mean, setting it up for the therapy aspect of it, 
hundred percent. You know, and why? Why wouldn't the government? Why wouldn't the government want to show support for first responders and veterans? Why would you not? You have an opportunity to really, really make a difference. Mm-hmm. You talk about privatization and stuff. Okay. Why don't you find good, solid trainers that have been vetted, that have worked with Mustangs and not sat there on a computer typing about Mustangs instead, that have legit have been working with them and say, hey, you know what? We're going to lease, you know, these 100 acres. We're going to build a a BLM facility just like you build a short-term facility, and you pick a couple people, and you guys get these horses adopted. Here's 200 of them. Oh, they provide all of it. Why can't they do that? Why can't they do that when I, I have my up? theory that's it's, well, it's easier to just shove pills down your throat from yeah. the VA and exactly. have you yeah. be dependent on the government. I don't even want to. I mean, I don't even want to get into that. I mean, I'm sure that's why you right. get a lot of pushback on it because, yep. and just like there's pushback on all sorts of other healing um, that's people are coming out with now for veterans, mm-hmm. and you know, you're wondering why like it's so hard to pass these bills to get these veterans help and without having to take meds, but. Right. Really, it's about the money, and it's about them being mm-hmm. in control. Mm-hmm. And if they got you medicated, they're in control. Yeah, that's I, – I totally – You know, another portion, I, totally I think you're – you guys are you're touching everything, but there's a window for veterans and law enforcement where, let's say you're a Tier 1, 2, or 3 operator, right? You're 90 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour. The day comes, you get out. It's over. You're dead. It's flat. There's nothing. You're not kicking doors. You're not jumping out of airplanes. There's no adrenaline rush. And people go into a depression. Mm-hmm. And it works the same for law enforcement. Absolutely. Those people are in depression because they're to them, in some respects, their life's done. They're, it's over. Now what? Mm-hmm. You know, and what can I do? And they're dead I- inside almost. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a huge thing for them to get involved with that as well because that would bring them out of it. There, there gives them a meaning. A meaning. Purpose. Yeah. Purpose. Yep. Mm-hmm. You it's and, and 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 you could see uh we had a we had a I'll just call him Tony that's his first name I'm not going to go into details but he's a major uh, in the Air Force uh Nellis Air Force Base <clears throat> and great guy um we were just starting off like testing the waters with with doing this with the therapy type of thing but not not like advertising and stuff because I've never my goal has been twofold really I mean, we got three mission statements on our website, but really it's two. It's getting our beautiful horses and burros adopted. That's number one. And then number two, our educational platform. Everybody that I talk to, just like right now, I will talk your friggin' ears off about those horses and burros. I, I, can't, I can't stop, and I'm not going to stop because they're that important, and they should be that important to our country. Because if you're willing to take care of something that's not you, what does that say about you? What does that say about us as a country? The country that I grew up in, that's how it used to be. You weren't afraid to help somebody. You're not afraid to hold the door. You're not afraid to shake somebody's friggin' hand. I could use words like loyalty and honor and courage and esprit de corps and unity. I could say those words to people, and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's what our country is. It's no different with those horses out there. It's the same thing. Yeah, they're not using those words, but but their emotional response to us is 1,000% evident. You can ask him. You can ask the wife. You can ask anybody. You can ask Randy. Yeah, 100%. But when you're sharing it with 
you know, when you're sharing it with one person, mm-hmm. that's one person. Right. And your passion, I mean, you're, you just you just oh, yeah. bleed your passion for it, you well, know? Amazing Which, I, I, like, I could not be interested in, like, I, I've never been that interested in horses. I'm more interested in horses now within the last hour and a half than I've ever been probably oh, in sure. my entire that's life. That's awesome. I love that. That's great. <laughs> but when you share it here on a podcast, then now other people, they're driving to work or they're doing, and man, and, and maybe they may not care about horses, but it, they may also, whatever their avenue is, mm-hmm. they begin to go, man, that's the country yes. that yes. I love. That's, yes. that's America. That is America, man. And that is, that's what it's about. But one of the takeaways, though, is the importance, like Russell just said, that you're, you're and I went through it. I admit it. I, I, my last day in the Army, I, I go up to uh, the finance, uh, get all the paperwork. The, e, the E7 comes out to me, and she hands me my paperwork, and she's like, all right, Sarge, here you go. And I remember, and I was like, okay, thanks. <laughs> and I literally, I was like, and she just looked at me. She's like, you got any more questions? And I'm like, Thanks no. for coming out. Yeah, she goes, well, well, be safe and have a good retirement. And I remember I turned around and I walked, and the hallway looked so friggin' long. And I was walking, and I can feel it building up inside me because I just realized I'm unemployed. I, I am no longer. 35 seconds ago, I was an E7P in the United States Army. And I had the world right here. 35 sec- 36 seconds later, I'm just a number. I'm just a gone number now. Mm-hmm. Same thing on my department. While I love being a cop, and I lived life as hard as I possibly could and got the, the stuff to prove it body-wise, that's for sure. The day that I, my last day at the department, and it happened to be one of my academy mates who was up in HR. I didn't know it at the time. He heard me talking. Brian, shout out, Brian. He comes, he comes out, and he's like, you're retiring? I was like, Poof. I said, dude, I'm done. It was right after the riots. I'm done, man. I'm done. I, I, I can't. And I was only going to do 15 years anyways. So I, I, I got it 14 in a little bit. Uh, I got hurt on the job. Got a bunch of surgery and stuff. And so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm punching out. So I almost made it. But I gave him the paperwork and stuff, and we were talking. And he goes, you know what happens now, right? I like, I don't know, I'll be retired and. Would go back to where he's like, and they know me and the Mustangs. Everybody in the department yeah. does. I mean, I got a little paver stone that my wife and I put down <laughs> at department headquarters. Legit, this is Funny Farm Mustangs, Brian and Jill Smith. You know, it's it's right there when you go in the door. You can't miss it on the backside. So, so Brian goes, he goes, he goes. You know, you know what's a sombering moment? I go, what's that? He goes, this. He said, as soon as I stamp your paperwork, I'm gonna shake your hand. And he goes, with this finger, I'm going to go. And I go, what does that do? He goes, it deletes you from the active roles of the department. I have, I felt so, I don't even know the right word. Like, not not alone, but I, I just felt, like, crushed, you know? Because I was like, he goes, literally, man, we're just a, a, a P number. We don't really have badge numbers. It's called P number, but... My P number is just a, a delete button away, and he was spot on, man. Yeah, and that's exactly what he did. 
it's a, I think that's a common sentiment with most guys uh, in that profession and, you know, in the military in general, not yeah. even special operators. Just all together. It's, yeah. uh, you know, you give your whole Everything. life, your belief system to something, and and uh, then it's over, you know. But that's, you know, that's the way it goes. I think, and that can go with yeah. other jobs as well. For sure. You know, uh, but I do think what you guys are doing and what other groups are doing to help, it needs to be it needs to be spread because the more help we can get for these veterans that are transitioning mm -hmm. and get them back on their feet, find them a new purpose right. and push them forward without the use of pharmaceuticals or oh. anything like that. I mean, the, the better off everybody's going to be. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that, that leads me into the, the whole point honestly is I want folks out there to understand whether it's with us or whoever, but, and, you know, like you said, maybe you're not into the horses and stuff, which is fine. I, I suggest you try it just to, like, pet them. I, we've literally had people that come over. All they wanted to do is muck the stalls, which means, like, like pick out the poop and stuff. That's all they wanted to do. And, and to be quite honest with you, it's extremely therapeutic. I know it sounds weird, but it's extremely therapeutic. You're just, you're mucking a stall. You got a mission. Nobody around to bother you. You know what you got to get done, and you're doing it. But you're not doing it for you doing it for that horse right there you're doing it something bigger than you and that really that makes you feel good inside that's what keeps you right here and not right here that's how that's how that works petting everything hey so would you say would you say that how did I put this um that when you're in the military or when you're in a part of uh of service to the country in some aspect or, or police department or whatever, you're, you for sure are a part of something way bigger than you for a greater purpose. Oh. And then when you come out that it feels like, Hey, life is over, but really the ones that it needs to be that chapters over mm -hmm. next chapter. And it's time to, transition to the next chapter right I, I think I think that there needs to be programs that teaches people how to transition properly because there the really isn't I, I know like in the military now I know they run them through some kind of programs and stuff like that a cap or whatever that thing was called but to be honest with you that that's not what I think people need man people need this they well, need they need to know like hey been there and done that come talk to me we can work it out well, your next chapter, would you say, and this is to you too, Eddie, would you say the next chapter, the requirement for it really is it also has to be something bigger than you? It has to be. Yeah, I mean, service in some manner, right? Yep. Because that's why we joined in the first place was to serve this country, and then you, that turns into serving your brothers, because you, especially when you come to a tight unit, mm -hmm. um, and that's what guys need to find when they get out. Got men and women who serve like, how can you serve and how can you be serve purposefully? Um, you know, and I think it just, ta it does take time and patience to get there. Um, and I think these transition programs that they have set up now, while they are doing them in good faith, it, they sort of just set you up to like, Oh, now you can go get a middle ma middle management position mm -hmm. at this company, which you really don't fucking believe in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but, hey, at least you're getting a paycheck, right? Yeah. And that's not doing anything for your soul. That's right. And I think that's where these things come in, yep. where it, it, you give the, you have patience, and you come there, work with these horses. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I mean, I haven't done it, but hearing you talk so passionately about it, mm -hmm. it seems like it touches your soul. It right? touches and your soul. It, it sort of reawakens people. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, I, 
I can find a new purpose, mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't have to be something that's being shoved down my throat or where I have to go make money at some, at some company. Right. Um, yep. And I think that's where, you know, yeah. I see the, the good in both, mm -hmm. but I definitely think stuff like this is, should be put at a higher echelon. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, um, and it does, it does so much more than just that. I mean, even if it's just for a time period mm -hmm. that someone comes out there and works with the Mustang. Right. I love, love how you said how your analogy of one, them being American and free, mm -hmm. that sense of freedom that That's you're not, uh, you're not just, just falling in order, right? right? That you have this sense of freedom. <laughs> now, guided would be good. It's guided, hope, for sure. of that. course. Yeah, of course. It's definitely, it definitely has to be guided. Yeah. But, um, I want to illustrate something. Just do we have time to? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. I, I know you want to read that letter. I, I do want to read this letter. So uh, this thing's called the Western Watch. Um, uh, my wife is part of a uh, a unit uh, within their unit that they they do like threat analysis stuff and things like that. So, <clears throat> but they put this out. Uh, the, well, they used to when we were in Vegas, and they they had asked her to uh, for one month. They said. Um, Write, can you write something uh, that's like, you know, motivating, stuff like that, and it's not, you know, I'll terrorist this and threat that and blah, blah, blah. So this is called Pets and Mental Health. And I'm just trying to sum up everything that, that we kind of put into, into light today. And so let me, I got to use my cheaters because, you know, <laughs> life is full of. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> she goes, the bonds between humans and animals are powerful and the uh, positive correlation between pets and mental health is undeniable. Pets and mental health go hand in hand. The bonds between humans and animals are powerful and the positive correlation between pets and mental health is undeniable. According to a 2015 uh, poll, 98% of pet owners think of their animals as a member of their family, me included. We've got dogs and, you know, the horses and everything. This is true no matter how old we are. Research validates the benefits of pets and animals of mental health and the benefits that have been proven by many scientific studies. Animals help with depression, as we talked about, anxiety, and stress. They provide companionship and ease loneliness, which is so important, so important. The first research on pets and animal health was published 30 years ago. Psychologist Alan Beck of Purdue University and psychiatrist Aaron Katcher of the University of Pennsylvania conducted the study. They measured what happens to the human body when a person pets a friendly dog. The result? Decreased blood pressure, heart rate, muscle tension, along with more regular respiration, and these are all signs of reduced stress. So if you go into a pen with a horse that's never been touched and you're afraid and you're tense, you're never going to get anywhere near that horse ever because they sense that automatically. You, that horse is telling you, calm down, deep breaths, combat breathe, relax. And when you do, you visibly see the horse do the same thing. It's one of the most beautiful things that you'll see. So I'll carry on. The researchers had discovered physical evidence of the mental health benefits of pets. Since then, scientists have discovered much more about the connection between pets and mental health. Studies around pets and mental health show that petting and playing with animals reduces stress-related hormones, and these benefits can occur after just five minutes of interaction. 
playing with a dog, cat raises our level of serotonin and dopamine. These are hormones that relax the nervous system. And you can tell my wife wrote this because there's, I, I, I don't even, I can't even <laughs> spell these words. Barely can pronounce them. When we smile and laugh at our pet's behavior, that, that helps stimulate the release of the happiness hormones. Furthermore, the sensory act of stroking a pet lowers blood pressure. As a result, animal-assisted therapy programs have become an important part of mental health treatment. The term pets is not just associated with dogs and cats. Since the 90s, mental health programs have incorporated equine therapy programs. So it really hasn't been around that long. But people that have always owned horses understand, like, those horses help you relax. Equine-assisted therapy actively involves horses and mental health treatment. The human-horse connection allows people to address emotions and issues. They do this through a powerful, direct experience of nonverbal communication. My husband and I have owned and operated a nonprofit organization called Funny Farm Mustangs since about 2008. We gentle wild horses, referred to as Mustangs, and burros. Burro, for those that don't understand, is the Spanish for donkey, but because that was so important to the history of our country, the government continued to use the word burrow uh, for adoptions. Since 2008, Funny Farm Mustangs has also been involved in equine-assisted therapy. In addition to the myriad of horses and burrows that we have gentled and got adopted, we have eight various types of equine to assist with the therapy. We have our own eight uh, that live on our ranch permanently. <clears throat> we have four Mustangs, one Shetland pony, one mule, and two donkeys. A mule is a half horse and a half donkey. We also have a cooney cooney pig and a potbelly pig named Wolfie and Luna. The pigs hold absolutely no function at our farm other than to make people smile. And they do. You can't help it. The cooney snores louder than all five of us. If all five of us were sleeping right now, we wouldn't even touch how loud that pig snores. But that's for a whole another time. They're superstars, really, and are immediately immediate stress relievers that make people laugh just by looking at them. We have seen dozens, if not hundreds, of people over the years, laugh, giggle, and become downright giddy when they get in the pen for the first time and lay, <clears throat> and lay eyes on Wolfie. I often forget how many people have never seen a pig in person, let alone pet one and rub its belly. And this pig is 350 pounds. It's not a little pig at all. It has big tusks and everything. If you are not aware, pigs love belly rubs and flop over like they're fainting, like he does, so don't put your foot there. Any stress or anxiety you have before you, you laid your hand on these beautiful creatures simply evaporates. When visitors come to the Funny Farm, after they arrive, we give them the usual safety class and a little history about wild Mustangs and burros. Mustangs are a part of our American history. They are living legends, really. And Nevada is actually known as the Wild Horse State. And as it turns out, many Native Nevadans aren't even aware of it. And it's sad. I want to interject something about my disdain with the, the BLM. When we asked about what else could we do, I want you to think the last time you were on an interstate in our country, how many times have you seen a, 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 a sign that says, adopt a wild horse or burrow? I already answered it. None. Why are they not doing that? So I'm just, I'm just putting that out there because it drives me crazy. Our horses are not stalled. They are out socializing in large arenas all day and night. It mimics the movement and herd mentality found in the wild. That's why we don't put them in stalls. To gauge comfort levels, we then ask people if they would like to pet the horses from outside the fence line. Many people, adults and children alike, love the idea of horses, but once they are next to one and up close, they don't really realize how big they actually can, can be. This is very often scary to people. It's the reason that we have a Shetland pony and donkeys because they're smaller and, you know, they're easier to, to come with. Very less intimidating. It's not that they're too scary. 
then we asked the visitors if they'd like to go inside the fence line to, to pet and hug and brush the, the horses. As proof positive of how equine therapy helps people, I would like to share a specific story about Victor. Victor is a nephew of a farrier named David that we used years ago. David asked us one day on one of his visits if he could bring his brother, his sister-in-law, and three children to see the horses, the whole family. He explained that their oldest child, Victor, was 11 years old. David explained Victor is severely autistic and nonverbal. They thought Victor would do well to be around the horses. It's something he had never seen or done before. All of Victor's family wanted to pet the horse and donkey. Victor was brought in the arena and led to the horses. He was shown how to use a brush or his hand to touch the horses. Due to his disability, we had to place our hands on top of his to, sh to show him uh, the motion of, of petting and then brushing. His siblings were in awe of the horses, and they enjoyed braiding the tails and manes, and, and they were loving it. It was hard for anyone to gauge Victor's reaction due to his being nonverbal and expressionless. 11 years. But he wasn't in distress, and he didn't walk away, so everyone assumed he was at least content. After about 15 minutes, we asked if, if they would like to sit on one of the horses. This is where my beautiful boy Rio comes into play, because Rio was just unbelievable. The parents both said no, and one of the children said no because he felt safer just petting him. But the other sibling said yes. She, and that was his sister. And she was very adventurous, also asked her parents if both she and Victor could sit on the horse together. And so that Victor can enjoy a ride too. Everyone kind of looked at each other and like wasn't sure. So Victor's sister took hold of his hand and led him to Rio. Rio was one of our oldest and most gentle Mustangs. He also had a smaller stature, which made him less intimidating. And he was very good with children. Victor's sister got up on the mounting block and threw a leg over like, like she owned him. This was just like a little, little girl too. She sat behind the saddle and then Victor climbed up and we got him into the saddle in front of her. <clears throat> His sister held on, held on to re, uh, Victor as he held onto the pommel, which is the, the front of the saddle, and he put his feet in the stirrups. As my husband led Rio around the arena by a lead line, I walked alongside the horse and to the side of the kids to make sure Victor and his sister were okay and safe. Victor's sister was thrilled her parents were excited, and the younger brother was watching with his big eyes, smiling and pointing and laughing, but was still too scared to try it. Their parents were taking lots of photos with their phones, and, and after about 10 minutes, Victor's sister wanted to get off a of Rio so she can go brush the other, the other horses. We helped her down. Once she was on the ground, we turned to Victor to help him off. And without any indication of what would happen next, when we went to help Victor down, suddenly he muffled a clear no. It came out of Victor's mouth. <clears throat> it was loud. It wasn't loud, but it was, it was loud enough that four adults and two children also thought they heard it, and everything went silent. Victor's parents and sisters took Victor, told Victor it was time to get off the horse, and Victor then clearly said no, followed by the word solo. This time it was louder. All of us heard it. Time suddenly stood still as we were in shock, especially because of his parents. All of, all of a sudden, Victor said solo again, and his parents were in such, such shock, they immediately started crying. 
sobbing, actually. Victor had never said a word in 11 years of his life. Never. We were all in such shock that we weren't sure what we thought we had heard, so we asked Victor if Solo meant that he wanted to sit on Rio by himself. And it was the only thing that we can think of, given he had, said, he had said no when he was told to get off the horse. Victor repeated, Solo, and then shook his head as if, as if to say yes. At that point, his parents were beside themselves. They were laughing, crying, hugging, <clears throat> all at the same time. They had no idea why... Victor had no idea why everyone was crying and laughing. He just wanted to be a cowboy in that moment. When his solo ride was over, his parents and siblings rushed over to him, and they just hugged him. Everyone, the parents, us, the kids, David, all remarked that, that it, was, it was the animals that had caused the effect on Victor. And to this day, we all get teary-eyed and smile when I think of that precious moment in time. It was beautiful. When everyone left, we gave all the animals some special extra hugs and affection and some treats, and it, it, it wasn't just a good day. It, it was an unbelievably great day. Mm-hmm. And I, I apologize for it, it gets me worked up because if more people, more vets, more cops, more first responders, I hope they hear this and they understand the power of this. Because it's that friggin' powerful. That's the power of these horses. That's what they can do. And you know what? This was a quote-unquote wild horse. There's your wild horse. That's what a Mustang can do. Now, having said that, any, any horse, you know, probably can do the same thing. But on that day, the Mustang was king of all the friggin' horses on this planet. That's amazing. It is today... And still one of the greatest stories ever in our lives. And we've had many, many successful stories. But that day, the thought that this kid had never uttered a word, never uttered one word in 11 years of his life. And he says, I don't want to get off the horse. You know, no. And then he tells us, solo, I I want to ride by myself. Which, you know, obviously we, we lead him, but he yeah. was by himself. There could be nothing greater doing something for somebody else and not yourself than that moment. That right there is, that's how our country is supposed to be for everybody. That's, that's, that is, that's America. Come on. That is how my country and our country is supposed to be, is that. That's when you're doing something much bigger from above yourself. Everybody should be in that same like mind. Mm-hmm. Everybody. So, Yeah, that, I anyway, mean, that I is wanted like to, an I unbelievable, wanted... amazing story. And I'm, I'm glad you did read that letter. And, Thank uh, you. I, it was, it's a heart. Hopefully people listening can feel your passion. I like the way I know me and Dave for what you do, you know, especially with these horses. Yeah. Um, your passion for the history of these horses and also, you know, how dedicated you are to helping veterans, law enforcement, you know, autistic kids. I mean, it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's awesome. I know I, I learned a bunch. Thank you. Um, you know, and it's, it's truly an honor having you on. It's thank you for my your honor. service oh, well, as well. And I mean, same to you all. Thank you. Um, 
where can people find you if they if people are listening and they're like, hey, you know what, I want to get involved or I want to try this out? 100%. Um, we, a couple of different ways. Um, I, I, I have to caveat by saying I am the absolute worst tech person on the planet. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I, I, I got a text with my big fat broken fingers and stuff. And I, but you can email us at funnyfarmmustangs at gmail.com, funnyfarmmustangs at gmail.com. You can check out our website at funnyfarmmustangs.org. Um, and uh, we are on Facebook, Funny Farm Mustangs. Go figure. Um, and uh, we have a, a and so please like it if you can go to it. And we have a YouTube channel uh, that shows me working with a lot of horses. The cool thing is the last Mustang that I did before we, we moved from Nevada and moved back to the east is uh, uh, got a five-year-old mare Mustang and uh, worked with her through the prison program out there, which is a, a different program. It's a good program, though. And brought her back, um, and uh, my close friend, Scott uh, Pastore, who is a Boulder City Police Department mounted unit um, officer, uh, they wanted to do a Mustang and turn a Mustang into a mounted unit Mustang. And I was a collateral rider on my department for about nine years with our mounted unit. And uh, what a collateral rider is you're, you're not assigned to the unit, but you've gone through basic mounted patrol and advanced mounted patrol and you're an instructor down there mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, because, like, during New Year's Eve, you know, you got, like, three-quarters of a million people. We'd like to bring the horses in. Well, they only they had, like, nine horses, but only three permanent officers. So they needed a pool of officers that knew how to handle them in big crowds and stuff like that. So I did that for about nine years. And uh, so the last Mustang I did, uh, went to Boulder City. So they're, they're using her now. Her name is Peg. She's a beautiful horse. Mm, so, awesome. Yeah, and she's doing great. Do you have a uh, place where people can donate? Or a link, no, on your site. Uh, I don't. I don't know. If, okay. If if I'm, it's one of the things I need help with is yeah. like a, t- <laughs> a tech person type thing. But like I said, we. I want somebody. I, if somebody donates, that's great, and I appreciate it. But that's that. I just want people to understand that's not what this is. This is to get the word out. Oh yeah, for sure. It, this is this is a, a, a helping device that I have personally had to use. So, so just so people keep checking funnyfarms.org. I'll help you with some funny web. farm Mustangs. Fun, funny farm Mustangs. Mustangs.org. That's our website. Dot org. That's and our pretty website. soon. They'll have a donate. And we'll put the website at the bottom. Uh, when this, when this uh, podcast comes out, we'll, we'll okay. put it out there. Uh, and that'd post be great. It. Yeah. Um, that'd be um, great. Yeah. Dave just happens to be a genius at tech. Yeah. So I'm sure <laughs> he can help you out. And that's, I really, what I really need help is with that. Like with, like, what do I got to do? Um, I have a, uh, well, well, my wife and I, um, we've got, I call them my surrogate adopted kids. So we got like three surrogate adopted daughters that are just amazing human beings. They're all horse people, of course. And, um, but one of them, uh, Haley has, Haley has always helped me. She's, she helped us, uh, set up the Facebook thing. Cause I don't really, I don't really know what to do. Mm. You know, she would like write these like beautiful like oh today we conduct training and these amazing mustangs and they use all these flowery words me i'd be like oh we did this and this and you know you can tell real quick that they would do the pictures and they'd always do all the updates so i'm i'm horrible but you can email us at funnyfarmmustangs at gmail.com um i i do want to plug one thing real quick or two things can i do that real fast just yeah, real, shoot. real quick um one of the most amazing human beings that i know is my brother tony Tony Gowan, he's a detective down at Garland Police Department. 
Uh, Russell and I just went to Toledo, Ohio a couple weeks ago. He got inducted into the National Law Enforcement Hall of Fame. Mm. Uh, he's an amazing human being. Uh, he ha- he is a senior detective um, in international crimes against children, and um, he runs a podcast uh, called Catfish Cops. And uh, I wanted to just for for parents, if you want the real truth about internet stuff for children and internet crimes against children, please check that check that out mm. uh, for anybody because they 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 go over case files and you hear how horrific these predators are and then they give you guidance on how to mitigate that with your kids and stuff like that it's legit good. great information it's called catfish cops good to have him on yeah it, it, he's an, he he is right now you can ask russell russell has known him for many years um he he is uh, the lead guy up at the uh, northern texas task force for for internet crimes against children and he flies all over the country and he's still he's got 30 years on he's hopefully gonna be retiring in two or three more years. Um, but he's currently uh, teaching. He's a, he, he does a lot of teaching to a lot of departments, even overseas. Mm. So it's he, he is for kids, but especially for moms and dads, it's important work that they do. And he's put a lot of people in federal federal penitentiary for that. So I just, I, want, I wanted to, uh, to put that out there and just, just make sure that, um, that, Guys knew about it because yeah. I know you no, support you something did. like that. We'll put that. Uh, we can put that. You guys got kids too. and stuff yeah. at the bottom. Uh, awesome. Thank you, guys. dude. Thank you. So, so honored, man. You, so honored by this. What you can do is hold two spots: one for my boy yeah. up up at uh, Funny Farms You're to right. live there for like I don't know how many years can they yeah. live there? <laughs> More than welcome. Anytime you want to come up. Shoveling horse poop. Yep. Any yeah. anytime you want to come up, there you're more than welcome. I'll put him on the tractor, teach him how to drag, and teach. I don't know, man. He may stay. He may end up going out in the range with the mustangs and living out there. Yeah, hey, he's, oh, I, he's I wouldn't mind doing that myself. To be quite honest with you, it's, he he he, <laughs> he he would like it. You know, you guys asked like you talk about donations and stuff like that, and I it makes me my stomach's. But one thing I I started doing, um, I, I'm starting a thing called Funny Farm Forge, and I'm just, I got an anvil, and my, and my wife bought me a beautiful forge, and I, I've been doing a lot of blacksmith work, and what I want to do is I want to be able to post it, like, on the Facebook thing and say, hey, I'm making, I'm only making, like, four four things, but any money that, like, if I sell, like, these hooks for the walls to hang hats and stuff on, it's, like, whatever, like, $15 or whatever. One, it's all handmade, uh. straight up forged, straight off the, the forge, because I love, I love burning metal, and I love hitting metal. But 66% will go to Funny Farm Mustangs automatically. 33% goes to us and only for materials, booth fees, taxes, whatever, no salaries. Just like now, no salaries. And I just, I wanted to, you know, if, if there's something that maybe I can... Yeah. You can tell me what to do or how I do that or, yeah. or whatever. I have no frigging <laughs> clue about any of it. So, yeah. but I just think I think that's a good way to bring money in without me having to ask f- for money. Yeah. So if you're a front end web developer or you're a social media manager of some sort, you can you could. Am I? No, I'm saying if you're meant. watching and you are oh. one, then you could post down in the comments and and we'll get you connected with them. Yeah. They could help out. People a lot. Will reach where's out. the comments at? Have a oh, we have a messenger, right? Yeah, he's talking the, about the show. Yeah, on the show. Oh, for, oh yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, I, oh, <laughs> I, I got you. I don't know, man. 
I'm right there with you. Believe I, me. I, I'm, I'm so. I have, yeah, we got you. Yeah. I appreciate the technology. I love it, but I, I, I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> Dragging the knuckles, man. So awesome. thank, thank you guys. We're so very no. honored. I thank you, man. Thank honored you so much. All right. Out. Out. Cut. Oh, that was awesome.